Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Greetings, this is episode 29 of the Silmarillion Seminar, When You Wish Upon a Star, which covers the first half of chapter 24 of the Quinta Silmarillion, of the voyage of A. Rendell and the War of Wrath. I'm Matt Shaw from North Carolina, also known as Redneck Baron, or Baron from Dixie, because some participants who come from Boston think I talk funny. In my opinion, this chapter features one of the greatest characters chronicled in the Silmarillion, A. Rendell the Mariner. Please indulge me for a moment while I wax poetic on my esteem for A. Rendell. A. Rendell is freaking awesome. Okay. When at one point in our discussion our gaze turns to the heavens, the Tolkien professor drops some knowledge on ancient Greek perspectives on astronomy. It may surprise you to learn that, as an undergraduate, Professor Olson double majored in English and astrophysics. What a combination. He also sang in a choral group and led the marching band. A practical renaissance man. This session is an anomaly in that we stay pretty focused on discussing the text in question rather than taking things too far afield. However, have no worries, we go on wild tangents in our next session with even a mention of Mr. T. Yes, Mr. T. The Rocky Three, Mr. T, not the A-Team dude. Well, I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, good evening everyone and welcome to the Silmarillion Seminar. Sorry we have a slightly late start tonight, but we've been having a hard time getting ourselves together. However, I think we are now assembled and ready to go. Uh, now, I also realize that uh, to, uh, to some extent I think my uh, my messages, my enthusiastic messages about ending the Quintus Silmarillion, which... Before we start, needless to say, I would like to recognize that I'm aware of the fact that I will have people actively trying to resist that project. But anyway, um, uh, but finishing the Quintus Silmarillion has left some people confused and saying, does that mean this is the last episode of the Silmarillion seminar? No, it's just the end of the Quintus Silmarillion, not the end of the entire book. We will still do the Akalabaith and the uh, the essay on the Rings of Power and the Third Age. But um, those, and we'll do, I think we're, we've scheduled two weeks for each of those, I believe. Um, so we still have, we still have four more weeks of, uh, of stuff to go here. So uh, we're not at the end of the seminar, but we are at the end of the Quenta Silmarillion, which is by far the largest chunk. Um, there are the five different sections of the Silmarillion, the one short section on the Aino Indole, the second short section on the Valaquenta, and then uh, finally the short section, uh, and then at the end, the Akalabaith and the of the Rings of Power in the Third Age. But the central, I don't know what, 200 pages or so, um, is the Quintus Silmarillion, which we are now, tonight coming to an end too. So, uh so that's kind of exciting. Um it's also kind of exciting that we are finally reaching the end of the downward spiral. We shall not be uh it it shall not just be getting more and more and more depressing as time goes on here. All right. Um so let's uh so let's let's jump right into things. Uh determined as we all are to get through this this week. Um but uh okay. One thing that I would like to recognize from the beginning, um, kind of like I did last week, is basically sort of the roots of this. We've been looking at, you know, a bunch of times we've been saying, wow, this chapter is really compressed. This, you know, there's this sort of really quick survey of really big events, and we were looking at that last time. And with Tour and the Fall of Gondolin, it's especially emphasized by the fact that there exists this much longer um 
this much longer version of that story with, you know, much more detail of the battles and everything else um, in The Lost Tales. The story of Eärendil is, in the one sense, similar in that, uh, you know, the story of Eärendil is a huge story, but it's even more tantalizing in that, unlike the earlier versions of The Fall of Gondolin, Tolkien never wrote it. He has he left outlines of what he wanted to do in the story of Eärendil at the beginning, um, but he never actually wrote the wrote the whole thing out. We never we, there doesn't exist at least there has never been published um, any kind of full length version of the story of Eärendil, um, which is kind of interesting because not because although it you know comes here at the end of the volume chronologically that is chronologically in Tolkien's life it was the beginning of the whole story. The story of Eärendil. Um, was the figure of Eärendil was one of the very first figures in Tolkien's mythology that he invented. In fact, you know, many have made the argument that Eärendil himself is like the germ or, you know, the germ or the seed around which the entire mythology grew. Um, And, you know, we're told in... We're told in one sentence in this chapter about the fact that he had a whole bunch of adventures, which we're not going to talk about. Um, Let me see if I can find that sentence there. Um, Yes. In the Lay of Eärendil is many a thing sung of his adventures in the deep and in lands untrodden, and in many seas and in many isles. That's it. Um, so you know, we're told. Like, this is another instance where we're told this story exists and it's out there, uh, but uh, but you know we we don't have time to to sing it now. And in this case, um, it never actually did come to exist. Um, so so again, I want to recognize the fact that although Eärendil is 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 really important um, in Tolkien's mythology. Um, we don't like the fall of Gondolin and have those have those those earlier texts uh, to the same extent. One small uh, tidbit that uh, that you might be interested in, based on his uh, uh, based on his outlines, is that uh, he one of his adventures originally had been. Uh, actually, a, a toe-to-toe battle with Ungoliant. Uh, Ungoliant is also a very old figure in the mythology and dates back from, you know, she, that she was one of the antagonists of Eärendil during his adventures. Um, uh, yes, Brandon is reminding us in the text uh, of, of basically where that con- the concept of Eärendil came from. Um, and uh, it came from a line of, of, of Anglo-Saxon poetry. Um which, as as he is, as I, I'll, you know, uh, uh, read the line, the translation of the line here, as as Brandon has uh, has transcribed it. Hail, Eärendil, brightest of angels, thou sent unto men upon this middle earth. And uh, Tolkien read that and basically thought that there must be some mythological germ behind that. That he's sort of understood that Eärendil, uh, the bright angel, the brightest of angels, probably meant something like the morning or evening star, the morning and evening star, and. Uh, he was uh, basically kind of working that out into you know what that might look like, and and his expansion of the story of Eärendil, his his desire to tell the untold story behind that line, um, which was a motivating force for so much of Tolkien's uh, thought and so many of his stories, um, was where this this concept uh, this concept came from. Um, but anyway, so so uh, just. A little bit there on the background so that we kind of know where we're coming from. Um, but as usual, I want to, though there's much more that we could say, you know, this is, I don't want to be going back and digging through, you know, there's a whole chapter on Eärendil and some different versions of poems and things. Um, 
that Christopher Tolkien gives and talks about in the second volume of the Book of Lost Tales. But I want to focus our conversation on chapter 24 of the Quinta and really looking at Eärendil here, especially in the context that he's given here. Because, of course, in that first version, uh, Eärendil doesn't have any of this kind of context. That is, if you think about the last chapter of the Quinta Silmarillion, in essence, coming first, that you know we start with this idea of the figure of Eärendil voyaging and adventuring uh, and going into the West... If that's where we start, without this whole backstory, it it makes an enormous difference when you first have this entire history of Beleriand in the First Age and the Noldor and, and, and Morgoth and everything else and the Silmarils, and then you bring Eärendil in at the climax of that story, at the very end of the story, um as the instrument of catastrophe, And so basically, Eärendil becomes so much, uh, just has has a completely different function within this version. Um, And so, as I said, I I would like to, I would like to stick primarily to, uh, to talking about that. Um, But let's, let's, let's proceed with some, um, some attempt at method here. And let's start at the beginning. Uh, first section on the encampment by the mouths of Syrian. Um, and, uh, you know, from Arendel's wanderings through the last and cruelest of the slayings of elf by elf. Um, just first, the character of Arendel. What did you make of Arendel as we get him at the beginning here, just in these first two paragraphs, say, um, what we learn about him, what he does, um, how he is presented as a character. Uh, thoughts? What struck you about this? Matt? Um, well, seeing as we're so thorough, I don't know if I should jump right to the second paragraph and skip the first <laughs> paragraph. Hey, let's uh, be rash. Let's but, go. But what, uh, what struck me uh, right away uh, it was his friendship with Kirdan and... I just all the symbolism of them building this ship together, mm-hmm. uh, and it echoes back to uh, the kin slaying and the burning of the ships. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ship is white, and he builds it with a uh, Teleri, and of course, the Teleri were subject to the kin slaying, and it's almost like uh, the whole ship itself is a symbol of that redemption uh, of the kin yeah, yeah. Now I think that that's a really great point, Matt. And I and I think that you can see, um, Arundel is like the culmination of everything here, right? I mean, he's he is the the sort of distillation of almost everything that we've seen. If you look back at all the stories that we've read and all of the characters that we've been studying, Arundel's related by blood to almost all of them. I mean, he is uh, he is like. You know, when he is the representative of the people, it's almost like he in himself uh, is the representative of 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 everybody of the Noldor, of the Teleri, uh, of the Mire. He's related to Thingol and Melian. He's related to the to to the Noldor through Idril. He's related to the House of Hador through Tuor. Um, He's related to the House of Beor through Baron. He's just everywhere. and uh, and I think here in this moment, Matt, we can kind of see how through his actions he ends up um, once again bringing, you know, you've got this, you know, he kind of enacts in a sense 
this reconciliation between, or at least foreshadows the reconciliation between Teleri and Noldor that we're going to see finally come at the end of the chapter and after after the War of Wrath and the forgiveness that the Teleri are going to offer to the Noldor and his ship, Vingilot, we're told. And I think you know, it's important, just as you say, Matt, to be remembering the ships that Feanor burned, um, because although those were the greatest of the, you know, those were the greatest ships ever made, and we're told, you know, they were like the Silmarils to the Teleri, Yet we're told of Vingilot, the foam flower, that it is the fairest of the ships of song. So this one ship uh, seems to be even greater individually than any of them were, even though they sort of as a, were, as a fleet were, were the greatest. Vingilot still, still stands out. So we have this one, well, I was going to say shining example, meaning it purely metaphorically, but of course, uh, but of course it's, it is literally shining and will become literally shining. So you have the Silmaril of Feanor, and uh, and we were you know we were looking at the the similarity between the ships of the Teleri uh, that Feanor stole and the Silmaril that Feanor is trying to recover, um, you know. So in in the story of Eärendil, again we get this combination, this coming together of the Teleri the 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 Teleri craft and the Noldor craft. Um, so yeah, I think that that's it's a very important thing to be recalling, and this is in the sense this is one of the biggest roles that Kierden plays. You know, we've talked Kierden has come up a couple times, um, and you know, but he's never been a you know a huge major player. He's he's kind of a you know a background character, and although he persists through the Lord of the Rings, is a really background character in the Lord of the Rings. Here, um, he this is one of the things, one of the actions that Kierden performs, which is. Uh, sort of most significant in his career, the building of Vingalot is a is a well, is a fanta- is is a very important uh, moment. Go ahead, Matt. Well, I, I was noticing that you know I've often thought about that. Kirdan seems to be kind of a you know a, one of the super elves, but mm-hmm. he's always kind of on standby. Right. And that's all. That's almost kind of like his role. He's 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 waiting the the ages to um to bridge all these things together. You know, um, the Undying Lands with Middle Earth and the uh, the Rons between the Noldor and the Teleri. And uh, you know, you know, at one time I don't want to jump ahead, of course, but at one time he. He actually possesses one of the rings of uh, elven rings of power. Right. He passes it on to somebody important later on. Right. And he just seems to be a facilitator for a lot of the great deeds and actions and events of um, of uh, both in Amon and and, and Middle Earth. Yeah, I I, I agree. Kirdan is a really fascinating character, as we've talked about before, especially because he's so tantalizing um, with how much he is in the background and is on standby. As you say, I really like that, but like. That's his job, right? Um, and he, you know, he occupies this this middle ground that I find really interesting. You'll all doubtless uh, remember uh, the, uh, you know, with great detail and precision, all of the subdivisions of the Teleri as they moved west, and some of them split off and became the Nandor, and and others split off to become the Sindar, and and, and all of that stuff. Um, but I think that Círdan occupies, Círdan and his followers, the elves of the Falas, o- occupy a, a really interesting niche in the sort of large family tree of the different branches of the Teleri. Um, between the two sides, on the one hand, you've got the Teleri who do go all the way over to Valinor and who stay there. And then you've got the Teleri who never completed the journey at all, who, you know, the, like the Green Elves. The Nandor and uh, and even Thingol and his followers, but then you've got Kirden who completes the journey. 
and goes all the way to the coast and is there and he's ready to go and they but he chooses to stay he chooses to stay in middle earth um not because he doesn't want to go to valinor not because he forsakes the journey but because he's like on standby he wants to you know part of it is for the love that he bears uh to ase we're told you know that that ase came and befriended the teleri there on the coast and he's the one who taught them ship making and everything else but um but again, he's, he neither rejected the journey nor did he complete it, but he's there on the edge. He's this borderline figure um, on the coast. He's always on the coast. Uh, and he is, and as we see, he becomes, you know, he, he begins to look like the ferryman uh, in the Third Age, right? He's the one who 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 is the uh well it's not a, exactly a gateway that's not the right metaphor but he's he is he is the ferryman to valinor um again sort of permanently or well, not quite permanently but anyway long term occupying that border um that border position and it's not just you know i think of the phrase that feanor used when he accused the teleri of being faint-hearted loiterers kirden is certainly not a faint-hearted loiterer he's he makes being on standby a job there, and he's really, uh, and he's really working on it. Brandon just asked quickly in the text, was he at the Council of Elrond? No, he wasn't. He sent somebody. Galdor um, is the elf from the Havens, um, so he's like the Cirdan's representative at the Council of Elrond. But Cirdan himself doesn't come. Um, uh, Brandon, that's fascinating. The Olmo connection. Do you want to talk about that? I think that's a really neat parallel. Well, between Cirdan and Olmo, I don't know. It just seems that. That they both have this love, and also with Arendel, they both have this longing, this for the sea, this this love. Like their home is the ocean, mm-hmm. and um, it seems that they're very content to stay in those in that realm, if you will. Yeah, and and that's really all I had to say about it. No, that's true, and 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 there's also a you know we can seek also I think a parallel in some sense, just as Omo keeps himself apart from the other Valar, and he's not separate from them in the sense of being at odds with them or anything like that, but he does go his own way and he does hold himself aloof um and he also is kind of uh, a boundary figure that is he's the one who is always who is crossing over who is interacting um with the with the people of middle earth and uh and Cirdan too keeps himself apart not quite as not solitary not not all by himself in the way that Olmo does but again he is he doesn't fit into anybody else's category he and his people are 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 on their own um and i think that's uh and i think that's kind of interesting joe go ahead all right um I know. I think later on in the text it mentions uh, that uh, almost says it was Randall's fate to come. But just in the beginning, it talked about two purposes growing in his heart. Uh, you know, he sought to sail out and uh, for the wide sea, and then a uh, tour on Idril. I just I didn't know if that could have been almost working in him, or if it was just his fate altogether. Because he seems like he's almost set on a path similar to Tour, like something's going to happen, and he almost doesn't have a choice. Yeah. But, uh, I just wasn't sure what may have been acting in that. Yeah, well, and I mean, and and uh, I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that those two things are two separate options, really. That is Omo working on him, and uh, uh, Omo wor- working in his heart and uh, his destiny, um, because that's I, I I you know would point though this is jumping ahead a little bit in the chapter, um, you know when we get when we get that uh, debate among the Valar, um, it's Omo who steps up and refers to uh to his debate um oh sorry uh, that refers to his fate sorry um and uh 
and uh, you know, so I think that that's you know, it's it, there it is. But almost said, for this he was born into the world. <laughs> like that was the coming here to Valinor was the point of him. That's why he was. That's why he was made. That's why he was. Uh, that's why. He, and, and remember, um, you know, Joe, as you're kind of reminding us here, he is the product. Eorendil is the product of the destiny of Tor, which Olmo particularly crafted. Um, it was Olmo who sent Tuor to Gondolin, um, and it was the destiny of Olmo, uh, you know, and sort of the hand upon Olmo, which even, which Turgon, even in his pride, could perceive, which led uh, uh, to the sort of permission for Tuor and Angel to get married in the first place. So, um, so yeah, if uh, if Arendel is a child of destiny, it's pretty clear that Olmo has a pretty big um, share in that destiny. Let's see, uh, John thought I heard you uh, click on there. Go ahead. Well, first I wanted to address how in the beginning, Arendel is associated, I think, from his first mention with light. He's called Bright Arendel, mm-hmm. which I believe to be a wonderful you know, inclusion. We've mentioned the earlier Anglo-Saxon phrase, which I love. And I'd like to emphasize his, his identity as almost a divine servant. I mean, there's been many comparisons online, which I'm aware of, of calling the Silmarillion basically basically a a Bible of Middle-earth, and I don't know if that's correct or incorrect to say, but I believe if there's one chapter which reflects especially the role of how one individual can basically, by divine grace, basically seriously change the the forces or the tides of fate, I I believe this is the moment where Arendel, I wouldn't say on his own, because he has Elwing eventually, but almost single-handedly turns basically the Valar as an act of providence towards the the road to the, basically the final overthrow of Morgoth Balglir. When we realize this, and when it's finally understood, we also need to understand a very, I think, understated note regarding this chapter. It's emphasized in the beginning, but nowhere else, that Arendel is the lord of the havens, mm-hmm. where basically he is situated. He's basically running his own little show, and he leaves everything, the, the, almost to the point of the, you know, the kinsling, he's not there. Right. On basically this most perilous of all quests. It's, it's this quest which basically draws him into basically the Tempest and eventually to the Undying Lands while Elwing has to remain behind. I think that, that later on will be a note of Elwing's character. And having the Silmaril, I believe, with Arendel is more part of his being and a part of his person and of Ving- almost like Vingulot. How those three, those twain per se, are one in being almost. Um, a trinity which seems kind of odd at first, but there is symbolism at work in that sense. I don't think these are separate points in that they are unrelated, but together I think they form a very interesting picture of a prelude to what is definitely probably the most summarized and yet probably one of the most important missions and the most desperate in artist history. Yeah, I mean, I I agree uh, with... Uh... I agree with a lot of those things, uh, John, and I think that um, looking at the three of them together, one thing I would caution is that the some of the connection between those three things that you were listing—that is, Arendel himself, the Silmaril, and Vingalot—certainly they are all they're all closely tied together, and they do receive some similar kind of descriptions, but. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm laughing. What are the, we you know we have this text chat going on. You guys are always undermining me. Uh, and Jason is Jason was just quoting from uh, 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 making a joke about from Verlin Flieger's talk at Myth at MythCon uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Stop doing that, guys. Anyway, so the three of them, Arendel, the Sumeril, and Vingoat, are connected together. But remember that this is because, in part, they because they are combined together later on. Arendo is called Bright Arendo at the beginning because he is that is how he is always going he is how he's going to come to be known. So when we introduce the story of Arendo here, the elves who are telling this story in the Silmarillion already know it, and so does the audience, which is usual when telling uh, great and legendary stories like this. And so they call him Bright Arendo, which works as a kind of you know uh, uh, foreshadowing in a sense of what's going to of what's going to happen later on um but he's referred to bright arendel because his destiny is going to be he's going to become a star and vingalot is going to become his ve- you know the, his vehicle as a star and the silmaril is the light of the star and so those three things are going to be unified in function uh and and therefore all associated together but i don't think necessarily that we can um that we can just sort of simply go backwards and connect all three of those things equally from the beginning um vingalot i would uh emphasize for instance is uh, it, it's certainly it's the fairest of the ships of song and it's um you know we get some descriptions of it um and it's connected with you know on the one sense with heavenly things that is you know it sails whereas the argent moon uh, argent just meaning silver there um so okay it's got silver sails and golden oars and white timbers but its name Vingalot means the foam flower, um, which doesn't have anything to do with stars or light, um, as it's going to go on to be. But um, but it's the foam flower, and this I think I would connect back with what Matt was saying before. Um, it is like the flower of all ships. I mean, it is the it is the you know of of all all of the ships that ride on the foam of the sea. It is it is the flower, and it is beautiful like a flower. Um, but anyway, I think that. Uh, um, but nevertheless, I, I, I mean, I, I do agree that they that they certainly are associated together, and they certainly are. Um, Arendel, you think of how uh, how Bilbo starts his song in Rivendell. Um, Arendel was a mariner, um, and that, that's that is his central identity. Um, that one of the defining things about his character is that longing that he has for the wide sea. Um, and it's interesting, you can see this, um, and here again, as usual, I say, let's not talk about the Book of Lost Tales, and then I continue to go back and make references to it, so I, I'm sorry for always, as I usually do, continually breaking my own rules. But one small interesting point is that uh, the name of Arendel is used briefly at the beginning of the Book of Lost Tales in Volume 1, not as a reference to a particular event in the story of Arendel, but as a general term, that somebody who is a wanderer, someone who has the desire to travel by sea and explore new lands and, and things, is generically called a child of Arendel. Um and so from the beginning, Arendel is associated with that longing, is almost identified with that longing. Um, so uh, um, so I, I think that that's, that's a really crucial thing. But let's move on to, uh, to the Kinslaying and, uh, and Elwing, and Elwing's reunion here with Arendel. Uh, final thought, well, not quite final thoughts on the Sons of Feanor, we'll get back to them, but, uh, uh, but f- final thoughts on this, on this third Kinsling, Kinsling, this, uh, this, this, this is, this, this is a little, this one is a little over the top, this one is a little, you know, it is certainly the cruelest. Um, what do you make of this, Dave? I think it's interesting 
that each um, each subsequent uh, kinslaying has become just like more and more horrendous. Mm-hmm. And of course, they uh, Tolkien points this out in the text. I mean, you would think at some point that maybe these guys would say. Like, how about you guys, how about you come on over to our place um, Thursday next week, we'll cook dinner, we'll buy the drinks, and we can sit and have a chat about this. But now they don't even bother uh, um, trying to to organize things anymore, Uh, you know, or or they don't even try, you know, to to impose terrible modern vernacular on it. Uh, They're not even trying diplomacy, you know, when when the, you know, because what's interesting here is that, that Tolkien points out that, the um uh the, the the people of the havens are reluctant to give up the stones you know in large part because because the people that had you know obtained them and and passed them on to them had s- suffered through so much luthien baron dior um thingle but also they point out you know and especially because they they have this sort of vague notion that 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 it's re- would be really bad to give up the silmaril while erendil's on the sea and I don't know, maybe they didn't mention this in their um, reply to the Sons of Feanor, but um, suppose that they did. You know, like the Sons of Feanor could have said, well, okay, fine, why don't we wait till Arendelle comes back and then maybe we can get together with him and chat with him. But they're just not even trying. I mean, I, I, I feel like um, I feel like uh, that that at this point, they're not even guy, you know, some decent guys who are constrained by a really stupid oath and are just making the most of it. I mean, they really have become bad guys at this point. And, and indeed, I guess this is why eventually their oath is rendered vain. Um, and and I do hope we have a chance a little bit later to revisit our our long our long-standing debate on oaths. Are they good or bad? Because I, I think this chapter is the culmination in the not o- oaths in and of themselves are not good. Bad oaths are bad. Maybe right. good oaths can be good, but there certainly are bad oaths, and this one's a bad one. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and 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 you're certainly right. I mean, there's there's no there's no sense in which this debate. Between them, you know, or the, you know, the, their 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 approach to Elwing and them, as you say, they're not they're not even really trying diplomacy, and it's cruelest is I think the important word here. This is not even this is not even war. Um, this is this is like this is a massacre. These are the these are the ref. This is a refugee camp. This is the last remnant. Of, of the elves in Beleriand that they are coming down and stomping on. Um, but one thing that I would qualify, I, 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 I agree with you about 75%, Dave. The one thing I would qualify, because it, it's, it's the part that I find most interesting about, about the Sons of Feanor here. On the one hand, I totally agree. Their, uh, you know, their, their oath is driving them to talk about the burden of, 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 of the oath. But of the accursed oath, strong words here. However, they're not just it's Maglor and Mithros who are the last two, and they're the ones who win the day, um, and they're the ones who do the butchering. And they, from the beginning, those two have been the nicest of all of the sons of Feanor. The really bad guys we've already killed off. I mean, they died in in in, in Doriath, Kelagorm and Kurufin and Caranthir. They're gone. The ones who were who have been jerks from day one and were getting worse and worse, like Kelagorm especially. But here, Mithros, we've seen Mithros struggling with this and even resisting before the fulfillment of the oath, as when he didn't insist on the Silmaril right away after Baron and Luthien got it, and instead uh, tried to form a union, which of course ends disastrously in the near Nithar Noidiad, but still good idea, as we talked about at the time. Um, 
you know, Mythros has clearly has been trying at times. Maglor, uh, also, you know, one of the, the first times that we hear about Maglor, we know that he is a mighty singer. And the first time, I think the very first time his name comes up individually, um, other than in a list, is after the kinslaying. Um, when we're told about the kinslaying, that is, kinslaying number one, back in Aqualande, um, and Maglor is the one who makes the song of lament about uh, about the fall of the Noldor, and uh, about the kinslaying and what a horrible thing it was. Um, so we know that Maglor, too, like Mythros, is not just a you know, a sort of a frothing at the mouth, monstrous villain figure. So it's like, it's the two most sympathetic of the sons of Feanor. And I realize that's a very relative category, but the two of the, the two most sympathetic sons of Feanor who, who survive. And I think that one of the effects that that has is it prevents us simply from, at least, at least me anyway, from completely writing them off and saying they are, um, you know, to use, uh, to use Sam's or, Frodo's expression uh, in the Return of the King that they're they're worse than an orc and merely an enemy. Um, in a sense, yes. But again, if it were Kelgorm and Kurofin who were the last two survivors, no question. But since it's Maglor and Mythros, I, I think it's a little bit different. But Chris, go ahead. I guess an il- just wanted to jump in with an, an illustration and just how rock bottom that these guys have hit and i think it's interesting that you brought up that they are at least have been the most sympathetic um the group under uh elwing they don't i, I get the impression they probably don't have a lot of weapons so uh, you're right it is it is a slaughter and uh um well I, there I there are two weapons that they, well yeah i mean Remember that Glamdring and Orcrist came out of Gondolin. Uh, now, they probably don't have them, uh, the refugees, uh, because that is the implication in The Hobbit, is that Glamdring and Orcrist came to the trolls who had plundered other plunderers and that it was handed down through the dragons and people who sacked Gondolin. However, uh, uh, the, the Gondolindrim had some pretty sweet weapons, so those who survived might still have some. But anyway, but, but, but I'm... But I'm quibbling. Go ahead. But overall, I don't think they had... I guess my impression was they weren't as well-armed. But I guess the the nature of them really hitting rock bottom, that their own followers, not some of them step aside and not, and not participate, and some of them jump over to Elwing's side and start fighting against them, and then they get killed, too, for doing that. But they're pretty much literally alone, just two of them at the end. Yeah. Uh, they don't really have any followers who are with them. Yeah, and certainly the very end that we see of, of, of Maglor and Mytheros is them completely completely alone. Um, so yeah, no, I agree. I think that that's, uh, um, we do see that, we do see that division. And, um, I was going to talk about, uh, Elrond and Elros, but I'll wait because a couple of people want to talk and I don't want to steal anybody's thunder. Jack, go ahead. I just wanted to add in their defense. Yes, they've, they're doing heinous things, but it's, but they would give anything to be out from under this oath. And I think that's clear in this chapter. They have long discussions about, you know, how, you know, how to go about fulfilling this oath and what's the lesser of two evils. And, and I think it's clear that they want out from it, but they don't know how to do that. And, and the oath drives them. And that's why a few uh, chapters ago or a, few, a couple of months ago, I asked about the oath because I didn't fully understand it, um, the power of these oaths. And obviously, um, it's so powerful that it drives good, what I would say is good elves you know, to do heinous things. Yeah, I, and I think that that's important to remember, that it's not just a question of 
them making a bad choice. This is this is them being driven by it. I mean, I would just I'd want to read that phrase at the bottom of two forty six. Um, now when now when now when first the tidings came to Mithras that Elwing yet lived and dwelt in possession of the Silmaril by the mouths of Syrian, he repenting of the deeds in Doriath withheld his hand. So as Jack says, he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to go. He wants to not do anything. But in time, the knowledge of their oath unfulfilled returned to torment him and his brothers, and gathering from their wandering hunting paths, they sent messages to the havens of friendship and yet of stern demand. Um, they are they are tormented. There is a sense here, I think, that we are supposed to take that there is a kind of compulsion on them. I am not sure here that their wills are entirely free in this matter. Um, you know that that there is a there does seem to be a power that the that the oath has over them, um, and I you know I don't think you know it's they're not like robots here, but there is there is more than just well we should probably fulfill the oath um so yeah i think that that's um we need to be careful uh in thinking about that because i agree you know jack we can see the way that the oath is talked about um especially and i would come back to that significant phrase the accursed oath um it, the oath is a curse on itself. We've seen curses acting. We've seen the curse of the curse of Morgoth acting on Turin, for instance, and we know that his own will was involved there. But also, there were some things that were not his will, and that were the curse of Morgoth imposed upon him. And I think that we can see a similar kind of balance here. Their own oath has become a curse. But um, uh, Jason, you wanted to you wanted to weigh in here too. On yeah, I wanted to agree with Jack and also point out that. You know, maybe there's something to be said for the argument that since the people on the other side of, of this demand, you know, whether it's Elwing or Thingol earlier or Dior, I mean, they know the oath is there. They know that the sons of Feanor are being driven by this thing. I mean, maybe there's something to be said for the position that they're just being bullheaded and not giving them the Silmaril because a mm-hmm. lot of this bloodshed could have been avoided. Yeah, and, and that seems to be especially true of Dior. Um but uh but 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 yeah, even you know, that sense of um, you know, as uh, as as we were discussing earlier about the the sense in which the sense that they have, you know, it seemed to them that in the Silmaril lay the healing and the blessing that had come upon their houses and their ships. You gotta wonder if they're quite right about that. Um, certainly, the outcome of having the Silmaril is not healing and blessing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, should they have given it up? Maybe. Um, would not yield the jewel which Baron had won and Luthien had worn, like the Silmaril has been rehallowed uh, by the story of Baron and Luthien, um, and for which Dior the Fair was slain. But again, you know, Jason, as you say, yet Dior the Fair was slain because he wouldn't give it up either. Um, and it seems, you know, as uh, Jordan suggested in his paper at MythCon, you know, that Dior too was uh, was succumbing to some of that same pride that Thingol uh, had been experiencing too. Um, Joe, go ahead. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I was just going to say, um, it's just really interesting that uh, I know the Valar have a lot of power. I mean, they take care of a lot of stuff. But, um, I mean, you're just kind of reading this, and, uh, you know, Alma bore up Elwing out of the waves, and he gave her the likeness of a great white bird. And it's just like, wait a minute, he just transformed her into a bird. <laughs> yeah. He can do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, uh, I mean, I, I've never really thought about it like that before, but I did not know they had that sort of power over the physicality of the children of Lindor. That 
was just I've thought about it in a certain way this t- this time and just never really realized that. Yeah, that is that is I I I have always found Elwing's initial transformation into a bird and apparently her later her subsequent ability to change herself into a bird at will that is in the in the sort of retirement phase of of Arendel and Elwing's life um that she uh she flies up to meet him in bird form though those words are not used that seems to be what we are to understand that they that the birds taught her, I mean I, I, well, let me not just uh let me not just paraphrase let me uh let me find that passage because I think the the phrasing is really fascinating because it's indirect um let's see where is that with uh Let's see. The, the March of the Vower. Let's see. I'm totally flailing on finding the right paragraph here. Does anybody have it? The uh, um, the place, Brandon, it looks like you were looking at the passage um, where she's able to speak to the birds. Yeah, I'm trying to find it, too. Um, let's see. And it is said that Elwing learned the tongue of birds they, who yeah. herself had once worn their shape. Got it. Where is this, Mike? her... The craft of flight and her wings were white and silver gray. There you go. There you go. Which page is this? Is this mine? I have the paperback version, so my page numbers won't match okay. yours. Okay. Oh well. Well, anyway, there it is. Um, nope, just found it. Two fifty. Yes, it is said that Elwing learned the tongues of birds who herself had once worn their shape, and they taught her the craft of flight. Now, see, they taught her the craft of flight makes it just sound like they taught her how to fly. Um, but it's clear from the rest of that sentence, and her wings were of white and silver gray, that she is again taking the form of a bird. Um, when doing that, that, that teaching the craft of flight means learning how to turn yourself into a bird. Um, and I, so, but, but Joe, to get back to your observation, again, we've been looking at Olmo being sort of pretty heavy, pretty heavy handed in his interventions here, especially with Tuor, but that's like nothing compared to what he does with Elwing here. Elwing throws herself into the sea with the Silmaril and he prevents her and he, and he transforms her into a bird and flies her out and transforms her back, apparently, um, you know, and brings reuniting her with Arendel. So, I mean, that's, um, that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty direct hand that Almo is taking. If Arendel, you know, Arendel makes it back to Valinor, but it is certainly not entirely on his own. Olmo has played a huge part in making that happen. No wonder he's speaking up for him, uh, in the council afterwards. Um, yeah, I just Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, no. I just didn't know that they had that kind of authority. Just I mean, because it seems like a lot of times they're like, "Oh, we we need to." It's with men more than elves, but we need to step back and let Luvitar take care of this because it's out of our jurisdiction. It just a lot of those decisions, like I said, mostly with men, it just seems like they stay away from. But I, mean, I guess this is kind of almost a different story here. So. Yeah. Yeah. No. I... I agree. I mean, it certainly is a departure from the kind of thing we've seen. Even when we've seen interventions, like, for instance, the very brief reference to the fact that uh, when Fingon is re- is rescuing Mythros way back near the beginning of the Quenta, right after, you know, when Mythros is is stapled to the wall of Thangorodrim, um, and Fingon prays to Manwe and Thorander the Eagle, wham, is there and, and, and helps him. Even that kind of an intervention is nothing like this. Um, Nobody does anything to either of them 
you know, that is, there's no just like, and Fingen was transformed and lifted up and, you know, or Mytheros was swept away or nothing like that has happened. So, I, I, I mean, Joe, I, I think you're right to point this out, that that is a pretty remarkable moment. Um, even Olmo before has been sending messengers and guiding people and calling people and... um he was orchestrating events pretty clearly in tour story, but, but again, still no, um, no kind of intervention quite like this. Um, Elwing therefore becomes, I think a, a really in, a really interesting figure. Therefore, one of the ones who is most directly touched and used as this kind of, as this very direct instrument by the Valar, um, or at least by a Valar being, being Olmo. Um, Mike, you wanted to speak before, did you? And uh, and now that you've got your mic working, um, you had a couple uh, a couple observations on this section that I would uh, that I'd love to hear you talk about. Sure. Um, well, I guess the one that I I, I very much like the uh, the imagery of uh, Arendil when he is uh, setting out for Valinor, and um, you don't yet get the full image of him. Uh, with you know, sa- sailing his ship, holding the rudder, where he has fully become Arundel the Mariner, capital E, capital M. Mm-hmm. Instead, he's depicted as basically being leaning over sort of the bow of the ship with the Silmaril on his, you know, on his forehead. So it's it's he's 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 playing a he's playing a less active role here. It seems to me where he's sort of divinely being guided to where he needs to be. And I think that increases the power and the impact of uh, the depiction of Arundel later in the chapter when he, when, he, when he fully becomes the fully realized Mariner, capital M. He's not there yet. He's a, he is a Mariner uh, who, has, has, who has been given this incredible jewel that has this incredible power. But he's, he's, he is not at the helm. Uh, Elwing is not at the helm. He's uh, he's leaned across the uh, the bow, and it, 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 the way it's written, it appears like he's being drawn to where he needs to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he is he becomes the beacon. Um, yeah, the the you know with Silmaril as lantern light. Again, I, I keep finding Bilbo's song of Arendel the Mariner is possibly. One of my certainly one of my top three favorites of all of Tolkien's poems, um, and I find lines from lines from uh, from that song keep kind of floating up um, into my mind as we're talking about it. Um, yeah, and uh, um, and Mike, I was really interested in the the point that you made also about Elwing and Arendel and the imagery we get with the two of them. Oh yeah, I'll just I'll submit that this is the most intimate and tender depiction of a couple together that we get in the entire book. Maybe I'm missing something, but the depiction of Arundel's uh, bosom and then Elwing falling asleep beside him with her hair upon his face and then her falling asleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a very, you know, we talk about the narrator raising or or lowering the level of detail. Here we've got a very specific uh, and tender and intimate depiction of them together. And I don't know if there's anything equivalent to that in, in, in any other passages we've read about other couples through the book. No, I think that's a really fantastic point. And, and that 
specific marital image that is of of the the emphasis on them not as not as lovers you know not as like you know baron seeing luthien uh you know through the trees and 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 being you know staggered by her beauty or anything like that this is a this is a very domestic moment um and fascinating that we get in this chapter which is sailing miles and miles above the action that is we're going so fast um it's such a it's such a short survey of all of these things you know we got the whole the synopsis of like oh and he had a whole bunch of adventures which gets a whole epic poem in half a sentence um and yet we swoop in uh not for a dramatic moment like that passage from the near night arnoidiad i i like to quote but for this moment, as you say, Mike, of domestic tenderness, um, and it is sung that she fell from the air. And again, notice, again, for some more style time moments, um, with that beginning, and it is sung that, normally that's a prelude to some, you know, sort of wide epic event, and it is sung that... Um, uh, we're thinking about, like, you know... Hurin crying out every time that he slays an enemy and 70 time he, you know, he, he shouted those words. No, instead, what it is sung about is, and it is sung that she fell from the air upon the timbers of Vingalot in a swoon, nigh unto death for the urgency of her speed, and Arendel took her to his bosom. But in the morning, with marvelling eyes, he beheld his wife in her own form beside him, with her hair upon his face, and she slept. Another one of those wonderful, and we've noticed this stylistic turn in the Silmarillion many times before, that final little brief noun-verb simple uh, sentence combination, and she slept. Um, uh, you know, and Morgoth came. Uh, that's, uh, that, but, it, but here it's, and she slept. He beheld his wife in her own form beside him with her hair upon his face. Um, I, that's, uh, that's really... Uh, that is, and I do agree with you, Mike. We've gotten husbands and wives. We've seen, uh, you know, the some some pretty important couples together before. Um, Baron and Luthien, obviously. Um, even people like Hurin and Morwen are an important couple. Um, even uh, kind of creepily, uh, Turin and Neonor. But here we get um, this this image of 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 Rihanna. Just that detail about her hair upon his face. Um, I just I just. I just love that. Again, there's there's nothing quite that tender. I think that that seems to me quite that seems to me the right word here. Um, but let's actually, since we are on this subject, continue with it. Um, there are several possible parallels, right, uh, between Arendel and Elwing and Baron and Luthien. There are numerous times when we are invited to uh, connect those couples together. What do we do with those? What are your thoughts about sort of the similarities and differences? between Arendo and Elwing as a pair and Baron and Luthien as a pair. Dave? Well, I think the most essential um, quality uh, that is a similarity between the two um, couples is the fact that they stick together. That was something that you really strongly emphasized um, about Baron and Luthien, that, uh, particularly about Luthien, that she insisted all along the way, every time he tried to leave her behind or say, you know, like, oh, no, I need to go on my way, um, this final step, um, uh, you know, you go back where it's safe. Um, I'm going to take one for the team here. She insisted, nope, we're in this together, we're in this together. Um, and ultimately, his success um, uh, in obtaining the Silmaril 
is largely due to her presence, um, the fact that she came along. Right. And you pointed out um, multiple times where the elves' plans to try and, and defeat Morgoth, although they were sort of pointless in the long run, that, that their attempts certainly would have met with at least greater success if they had stuck together, and that nobody seemed to learn the lesson of Baron and Luthien. But it appears um, that uh, Arendil and Elwing did learn that lesson. Well, maybe Arendil didn't, because he kept trying to leave her behind <laughs> right. also. Elwing, Elwing learned it. <laughs> yes. Elwing learned the lesson. As usual, it's the women. The women are the ones who actually see what's going on. The men are oblivious, as usual. Right. Um, and, and, of the course, not if we are to trust to the wise, what the wise say, which is that yes. the, the jewel was the reason for them um, making their ways uh, out of the enchantments of the Enchanted Isles and through the shadows of the shadowy waters, that the Silmaril was the reason for that, then um, ultimately Arendil's success is, is um, largely due to Elwing's presence. Although, of course, you can only take that so far because in the end he does manage to leave her behind. He does deliver the errand by himself. So. Yeah, 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 and, no, exactly. And, you know, I just to, 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 to hold on for a second on that, par- on, on that specific parallel, I think it's, it's really fascinating when you look at the, 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 par- the, the contrasts in the situations. The, the primary moment, the moment that we spent most time on with Baron and Luthien, when Baron is trying to leave her behind. Um, this is the time when he sings his song, when he does briefly leave her behind, and then he sings his song, you know, his, that Luthien for a time should be song. Um, and this is when he's taking the last step. Like they've, they've escaped everything else they've gotten. He's right on the edge of, of Anfauglith and, and the, he's going to go up to Angband. So I won't take her with me into darkness. I'm going to leave her here where she'll be comparatively safe and Huan is here too. And so that's all good. Here it's not into Angband. It's the opposite. It's into Valinor, right? It's, you know, it, into, into blessedness, into light instead of into darkness. Um, yet, of course, it's still into peril. It's still into danger. He still feels, fears destruction and doesn't want to lead her to certain destruction. Remember, Baron is being sent to, to certain destruction on purpose. Uh, that was Thingol's plan. Um, Arundel, of course, not in that same situation, but but yet again, I think it's 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 to me, I think, very evocative um, that certain doom for those two characters that what they are trying to spare their beloveds from uh, unwisely, as Dave, of course, rightly points out, but still um, with good intentions, um, seems so diametrically opposed, and yet uh, in practice are pretty similar. Uh, Jason, did I steal your uh, your your point there? Well, you started to go off in a different direction from what I was going to talk about, but okay. since you called on me, I'll say sure. it anyway. Sure, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, I, got, I got the idea that, in a lot of ways, the Arendel and Elwing relationship is, is more traditional. I mean, Elwing is more of a passive figure. We don't see her, you know, blowing away a fortress or you know, right. putting Morgoth to sleep or anything like that. And Arendel is more the man of action who's taking, you know, being out in front doing things. Um, and, and in other ways, you know, you don't have Arendel sort of marrying up to Elwing the way you have with Baron, who's, you know, Luthien is clearly above him in status and all that, but Arendel and Elwing seem to be a lot more equal in that respect. Yeah. If it's, it's true. Um, that that certainly is a big contrast between the two of them. I don't think, um, yeah, because even the elven, I mean, both of them have both human and elven ancestors. Arendel's elven ancestors are higher. Now, Elwing is 
comes from Melian, so she is of divine race, as it says. But, um, but yet, certainly, I agree. He is the one um, who is the instrument of destiny, um, and he is the one who is the lord of the city, and he is, or the lord of the the you know the havens that they've made down there at the mouth of Syrian. So I agree with you. There is not there that same sense that we get in most of the other significant couples like that that we get: Tuor and Idril themselves, Baron and Luthien, Arwen and Aragorn, um, Thingol and Melian. In 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 you know in nowhere do we here we don't get that same kind of that same kind of parallel and i agree elwing is definitely more passive even in as we were looking at in sort of as an extension of the point that joe was making about ulmo and his intervention here um we can also see that even the one thing that she does and as 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 dave was pointing out it is essential her participation is essential if she hadn't brought the silmaril to him he would not have been able to succeed but Bringing the Silmaril to him, it's not obvious that that was her plan. Um, Olmo conveys her to them. Now, she is, she's apparently flapping her wings real hard. I mean, I don't want to, you know, like, take away from the fact that she's obviously putting a lot of effort into this. You know, she falls in a swoon. Um, but again, she has been lifted up by Olmo. And again, she, like Tuor in the previous chapter, is the instrument for what Olmo is clearly bringing about, I think, here. Um, so that, so yeah, it does um, make her, if not a completely passive figure, certainly, as you say, Jason, she's no Luthien. Um, Brandon? Yeah, I don't know if this is more of um, implied in the text or is in the text, um, but um, it seems that Mandos is kind of the the another parallel between Baron and Luthien. Um, it seems that the the Valar have sort of pity for them both. And mm-hmm. um, it says in the text, Mandos answered equally, the Noldor who went willfully into exile may not return hither. But when all was spoken, Manway gave judgment. And so it seems that it's implied that Mandos is an even is kind of moved by this and can't be objective. So Manway gives the judgment. Um, so perhaps maybe another parallel is Mandos is is moved by this these two kindreds? Possibly, possibly. I'm not sure. I mean, Mandos is kind of playing bad cop here in this exchange. Um, uh, I mean, he's the one who speaks up first and is like, shall mortal men step living upon the undying lands and yet live? Um, that is, he seems to be playing the, the heavy here, um, who's saying, well, okay, we're all glad to see a Rendell and everything, and this is awesome, and let's totally go kick Morgoth, but, but we should totally kill him. Uh, that it's like, he should die because he came here and he shouldn't have. Um, it was, you know, yes, we're all glad to see him and everything, but it still breaks the rule. Um, and then, you know, an Omo is the one who is, who is, who is playing good cop there. Um, you know, for this, he was born into the world. I, this is, it, it is his destiny. Seriously, you're going to blame him for this. Um, and hey, uh, you know, he's like as much elf as he is man. So that's okay. And then Mandos is disagreeing with that. No, no, no. Being an Noldor is hardly an excuse, right? No. So in fact, that just means he should be twice condemned, because he he transgressed, he trespassed in Valinor, not only as a mortal man, but also as an exiled Noldor breaking banishment. Therefore, out with him. And then Manways again. He doesn't say the out with him business, but that does seem to be the line that Mandos is saying that Mandos is being the voice of justice here, strict justice. Um, and he is, you know, Manway doesn't, doesn't side with him. So I don't really see Mandos having, 
um, having sympathy himself here, um, he is articulating what strict ju strict justice, of course, as we saw in the previous passage, the same strict justice that Arendel assumes is going to come down on him. That's what makes this whole thing so dangerous. Um, it's a very different kind of danger uh, from Morgoth, but yet, nevertheless, there's still that same kind of transgression, um, and he, he, like Baron, assumes he's going to get destroyed. Um, but Manway has the power of doom, which again a very important word when uh, in the context of 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 fate. Uh, you know, think of the different ways that that concept is brought in here. Mando spoke concerning his fate, meaning what was going to happen to him, what what his um, what punishment they're going to give him. And almost says, for this he was born into the world. In other words, it is his fate. And then Manway says, the power of the power of doom is given to me. Doom again being, uh, at least in some context, a synonym of fate here too, but meaning also judgment. Um, so I think it's that that play here in these paragraphs is really interesting. Both recognizing the uh, the existence of fate uh, as this kind of external thing, but also their own power of of deciding his fate and of and and of decreeing a doom and having the power of doom um we've kind of skipped over Arendel's arrival which i i i don't want to do two details that we should mention first um the emptiness and that sort of the kind of strange detail the strange and apparent anticlimax uh at least from Arendel's perspective, when he arrives and he's like, here I am in Valinor. Where is everybody? Um, what do you make of that? Um, why, what is, what is interesting? What is significant about there being nobody there? Um, and he, to the point where he actually thinks, oh my gosh, something horrible has happened. There's been like, I don't know, pestilence or something. I, every, everyone in Valinor has died of the plague. Has some evil befallen Valinor? Um, this seems like a strange kind of anticlimax. Anyone have <clears throat> anyone have thoughts on uh, on this this uh, this moment? Of course, as Brandon points out, uh, you know, and the text emphasizes the significance of the time of festival. On uh, people show up during people show up unexpectedly at times of festival so frequently. You would think that we would have come to expect it by now, but Laura. I was just going to point out the obvious and that every other time there's a festival and everyone's away, it's it's usually something horrible that's that's happening. But this time it's another, it's something else that's um, uh, you catastrophic instead of being catastrophic. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that the um, this is the moment, in a sense, which which you know the parallel offers a kind uh, too grandiose to say sort of of healing um but there is a kind of reversal especially specifically the reversal of the one that that is recalled the last time we saw um a a festival in in valmar was when as the text reminds us when morgoth and ungoliant came in and destroyed the trees so just as in that moment the light of the trees departed now in that same kind of moment during a time of festival the light of the trees is returning in the Silmaril. Um, Brandon, go ahead. Um, it just—I was just going to say that when Yonwe, um calls to Arendel, when he's just at the last moment, when he thinks about going back to the sea, he hears a great voice calling, "Hail, Arendel of Marino's most renowned." 
happen. Um, but cometh unawares, the long for, the cometh beyond hope, hail or endo, bearer of light, before the sun and moon. Um, so this is a light, the symbol is before the sun and the moon even. Um, but uh, it seems that the Valar seem to even be um, surprised. That is, they seem to like, they seem to have their own eucatastrophe, mm-hmm. their own eucatastrophic moment there. And it, it shows kind of the limitations of the Valar and how they don't know how the music is going to be played out. And this is one of the instances in where they did not expect this to happen. And they're like, ah, another, you know, that Aluvatar, he's at it again. It's just, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It seems to be one of those moments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I think that the um, that set of titles that he is given um, by Aonwe when Aonwe, you know, uh, notices him and, uh, and makes his declaration there... Um, I think it's a fascinating set of titles, but my favorite are those ones that you read, the looked for that cometh at unawares, the longed for that cometh beyond hope. Um, yeah, Mike, go ahead. I viewed the silence purely as a stylistic choice where um, in the same way that if this was a musical composition, at the moment before the brilliant trumpet fanfare, there's almost always a pause or a dimming of the action to, to amplify even more the the trumpet or the, the, the horn call that signals the arrival. And so for me, I, 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 I really didn't spend too much time thinking through why, you know, you know in terms of the, the, the story itself. For me, it was purely um, to bring out the trumpet call of uh, the, the herald of Manway and his calling to him, you know, out of the silence. So that was my take on it. I, I, I do agree that it has that effect. Um, but the part that always gets me, the part that I think actually strikes a different kind of note there, uh, you know, to sort of, to use your, your, your musical metaphor is the fact that he has actually started, he's turned back. Therefore, he turned back at last towards the sea. But even as he took the shoreward road, one stood upon the hill and called to him in a great voice. He has turned around and started to go home. Um, you know, in that moment of hey, Rendell standing there, be like, well, well, that that didn't pan out. You know, here I finally got to Valinor, and um, you know, it's like. Hey, Rendell, you've made it to Valinor. What are you going to do now? And he's like, hey, well, nothing. Like, go home, I guess. There's nobody here. I kind of expected uh, it would be a little bit different from this. Um, that moment is brought out enough, I think, that it becomes its own sort of note. And then I do agree with you, Mike, then that... Um, the disappointment, the confusion of Aarendo is shattered by Aonwe, not just the fact that, you know, there he is and that he's speaking, but in what he says. Um, Hail Aarendo, of mariners most renowned, the looked for that cometh at unawares. Um, yeah, you caught us on the hop, but we were waiting for you. The longed for that cometh beyond hope. Um, that not only is everything okay, and it not, and that it isn't, in fact, in the end, anticlimactic, but that 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 he was, in fact, expected, and they knew they know who he who he is, and that he was coming. Um, Dave, I have a just an idle musing um, about Aomwe's um, voice. Mm-hmm. So they say that he he he. Um, he shouts in a great voice. I don't think the word is actually shouts. Um, called to him, yeah. That Arendel hears a great voice. Um, what did you say? Called to him in a great voice. Is that... Yes, called to him in a great voice, yeah. which, which doesn't actually 
um, which doesn't actually, I mean, I think we sort of interpret that to mean he yelled, um, but, it, you know, it called doesn't actually necessarily uh, imply any sort of particular volume. And Martin Shaw in his audiobook shouts it. But I, I was just imagining as I was, um, I was on my run today listening to this and imagining, like, did he actually shout? Because you would imagine that a, a Valar, especially Yanwei, the herald of Manway, if he really shouted, I mean, you'd be able to hear all the way, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, across Arda. And certainly, you know, someone like, for example, Morgoth would have heard and perhaps might have had a better idea that some, somebody was coming for him later. So I was just imagining, like, I wonder what that call was like. Was it indeed sort of a, a, a voluminous, loud, you know, shout? Or was it, you know, I don't know, something more where it could have been just a whisper, but somehow it reached Arendil and penetrated him? I don't know. I was just musing about that. I don't think there's actually any way to actually figure out what it would have been. There's nothing in the text, as Verlin Flieger would have said. But. Right, right. And, and, and as you say, I mean, even just the circumstances, um, I mean, if he were shouting, then, you know, Arendel could easily say, well, first of all, I, I'm right here. And secondly, it's just me. I mean, you don't have to project like it's there. We're the only two people here. I, I, you can just you can just talk straight to me. But again, I think that that's that's again the and here to come back to Mike's uh, image of the fanfare. Um, what Aonwe is doing here is not just, hey, I've got something to communicate to you, Arendel, walking down there on the road. And uh, heck, I'm just going to I'm going to I'm just going to let this thing rip and shout it real loud. He is proclaiming something. This is this is the moment where, and it's this is why this is Aonwe himself doing this, the herald of Manwe. Um, he is the he is proclaiming that the moment has come. That Aarendo, this is a turning point in the whole history of Arda, and it has to be proclaimed. And so it is proclaimed in a great voice, whether that means he's shouting or not. He is uttering a weighty thing in a portentous voice and with very high rhetoric. Um, and so this is clearly not the goal of this uh, speech, is definitely not merely interpersonal communication. Um, Joe, go ahead. There's really not a whole lot to this, but uh, I just think it's interesting that during the time of festival, whether you're trying to sneak in like a Melkorn on Goliath or trying to like like come in with like a big bright light on your forehead and covered in diamond <laughs> dust shining, I mean, no one seems to notice you. I mean, no matter what you're doing, <laughs> it's just it's just kind of funny because complete opposites and still nothing. Yes, cloaked in <laughs> darkness, radiant uh, with light. Yeah. Um, yeah, none of that uh, uh, is is really picked up on. But it's pretty clear that uh, the uh, the perimeter security uh, by the Valar just really has not improved. Um, Mike, go ahead. I like the fact that the way he writes this, we hear the trumpet blast of the of the proclamation out of nowhere in the same way that Arendil does in that final sentence before um, uh, we get the actual proclamation. All we know is one stood upon the hill and called to him. We don't get uh, the herald of Manway saw that uh, Arundel was walking away and called to him and said, colon, we don't get that. Instead, we get, and we sort of are put in the shoes of Arundel himself, that confusingly, out of nowhere, comes this great voice crying. And so we experience that paragraph sort of with the immediacy that Arundel does. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we're then told that voice was the voice of Einway, right. Harold of Einway, and then we get that detail afterwards. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that moment. The uh, the that voice was the voice of Aonwe is definitely a shift back to that higher narrative register. Um, that not uh, not quite um, omniscient frame, but but the the sort of legend recounting. I'm telling you the whole backstory frame, um, and not just from A. Rendell's perspective. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. What do you make of the last sentence? And Brandon, when you were reading this, you stopped short of the last sentence. But what do you guys make of that? Splendor of the children of Earth, star in the darkness, jewel in the sunset, radiant in the morning. Um, what, what do you, so you're A. Rendell, as Mike has pointed out, we've sort of been looking at this, uh, paragraph from, the, from A. Rendell's point of view, and then we get not only this great voice suddenly saying, uh, saying, but, but, but saying some fairly odd, uh, some fairly odd things. Splendor of the children of Earth, Jack. Well, it almost seems like they knew what they were going to do with him. I mean, later on they're going to shoot him up into space, and he's going to be the the morning star and the evening star. So, yeah, maybe uh, Arendel didn't know this, but it seems that they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and you can see, you can see his his destiny is clear there. And I think that this moment helps us to see the significance of that destiny. Um, he is the splendor of the children of earth. And I don't think that that necessarily means or simply means Aaron, do I want to let you know you're, you are the awesomest of all of the children of Luvatar. Okay. I like, you know, you, you're just, you've proven that you are the best out of everybody. Splendor is an important word there. That is, he is, he is, he is the shiniest of all of the children of the earth. Um, well, yes, of course, because he's wearing the silmar on his brown, he's covered with diamond dust, and he's going to be made into a star. So, yes, he is going to be, he's going to have more splendor than anybody else, because he is, in fact, going to be radiant in the morning. Um, but of course, we can also see here the significance of the whole morning and evening star thing, right? That, uh, um, that you have, that he is not only, he is not, he is a star in the darkness, jewel in the sunset, radiant in the morning. He is, he is the one who ushers in this transition between the night and the day, but also the, the, the day and the night. He is the evening and he is the evening star and he is the morning star. He is the star whose rising signals the end uh, you know, so he is there and he is, he is the evening star of the first age. Um, but he is also the morning star of what is to come. He is, he is, a, he is a star. He will be a star in the darkness. Um, like the star that Sam sees through the, through the clouds, through the shadow in Mordor. Um, he is, uh, you know, so, so we can see him both at the dawn of things, but also at the closing of things. Um, and and again, here I I think back also to that parallel or sort of that anti-parallel um, with Morgoth and Ungoliant, um, the ending of the light of the trees and the return of the light of the trees, um, the light from before the sun and moon. Joe, go ahead. This is kind of getting away from subject a little bit. This is just a out of Randall himself. Um, just you really see how not. Nah. <laughs> Not like, okay, not like a great person, but 
I mean, when he he's pleading for the case of like both races of the children of Luvatar, both elves and men, and for the Noldor and all of their you know woes. And this is while some Noldor just like stole his two kids. And I mean, I, I don't think he was pleading for the sons of Feanor specifically, but I mean, he's going through a rough time himself, and here he is pleading for everybody else. I mean, uh. It just seems like, not that there's already forgiveness in his heart, but he's just already doing this for other people. And then it also later talks about uh, him pretty much siding up with Elwing, whatever she chooses to do. I mean, he's just, uh, he's very selfless. And again, it seems like a case of him being rewarded, as you see later on, for being so selfless. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, especially the the business about the sons of Feanor, which of course, as we, with his sons, um, and of course we, you know, we, we, we know, though he and Elwing don't, um, know that actually Elrond and Eros are fine. Um, and in another moment, this is a point I was going to bring up a long time ago, but I forgot to, so I'll do it now. Um, the love that we are told that grows between Elrond and Maglor and Mithros, um, is another, I think, pretty clear prompt not just to look at Maglor and Mithros as slavering monsters. They're, they are... Elrond, certainly of all people, is not going to uh, um, to strike up a really close friendship and come to love them if there's nothing lovable about them anymore. Um, but anyway, as Joe says, for all Arendel knows, not only are his kids dead, but they are dead at the hands of some of these same Noldor that he is coming to petition for. So I agree, there is, he is not just representing, you know, himself and his own suffering. He's not only there as the representative of everybody, and as, as you know, I said before, he's like the distillation of, of, of everybody in the first age, but he is also clearly representing his enemies. Um, then the Valar took counsel together, and they summoned Olmo, and Eärendil stood before their faces, and delivered the errand of the two kindreds. Pardon he asked for the Noldor, and pity for their great sorrows, and mercy upon men and elves, and succor in their need. And his prayer was granted. Another one of those wonderful simple sentences at the end of a paragraph. But um, pardon he asked for the Noldor, and pity for their great sorrows. I think Joe is very right to remind us of how bitter that's got to taste to him right now. Um, if anybody's going to be a little unsympathetic with uh, with the sorrows of the Noldor at this particular moment... Um, you know, Arendel has reason um, not to be not to be particularly sympathetic. So yes, his status there as intercessor, his petitioning on behalf of everybody, is self is self sacrificial. Not only in the sense that by transgressing this boundary, he is yielding up his own life to judgment if they deem that he has broken the ban and he has come. Um, it's not only self sacrificial in those ways. Um, he has lots of reason to stand there and say, you know, I was going to come and ask you to uh, help the Noldor, but you know what? Screw him, okay? The only Noldor left in Beleriand are the sons of Feanor, and forget about it, okay? Um, help everybody but them. Uh, but actually, could you smite them? I, I, that would be perfectly understandable. Um, but he doesn't do that. And um, I think that that's, that's clearly... It is clearly important for us to recall how how selfless um, Joe, as you said, that that intercession is there. Um, now, what do you make of his of his fate, of his choice? Um, well, really, of Elwing's choice. Why does Elwing choose what she chooses? Why does she choose the firstborn? 
Warning, this is a trick question. Dave, go ahead and answer the trick question. Well, in that case, I believe I have probably been tricked. Um, <laughs> I was going to point out that they did, in the text, they specifically mentioned that uh, she chooses because of Luthien. Yes. Um, uh, but I don't know what the... Maybe I've just fallen right into the trap. I'm, I'm, I'm plummeting down into a deep, deep pit at this point, cursing your name. <laughs> you have. Well done. Um, no, basically, my question is just, what the heck does that mean? An Elwing chose to be judged oh. among the firstborn children of Luthien because of Luthien. Because of Luthien, like, what does Luthien exactly yeah, have to do with good, that choice? That's a good point. I mean, because I mean. Luthien made the exact opposite choice, right? Right. Obviously, it doesn't mean because of Luthien in the sense of, like, taking Luthien's example because she's doing the opposite of it. Right. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite odd. Um, and I did, I, I wanted to point out before I, before I yield the mic, um, not directly related, but I did want to point out that I think the really interesting parallel, um, is Aragorn and Arwen because, mm-hmm. um, these two choose with the, um, Eldar and Aragorn and Arwen. I mean, Aragorn sort of had his decision made for him, but in a way they choose with mankind um, and in both cases, it's the woman's decision, which is the really important one. Yes. Now, of course, the huge difference between Eärendil and Elwing and either Baron and Luthien or Aragorn and Arwen is that both partners have a choice because both of them are mm-hmm. half-elven um, or at least, you know, mixed. Um, Elwing is not exactly half, but uh, anyhow... Um, uh, but Aragorn and Baron don't have choices. I mean, they're mortals, straight up. They're, they're mortals. Um, it's the women who are given the choice. Do you stay with, uh, you know, do you do you keep the hand you have, or or do you, uh, you know, do you lay that do down you, and do you know, accept it? You might you might say in a way he couldn't choose um, uh, to actually be immortal, to be with the Eldar. But at the same time, if you look at the example of the Numenorians, he certainly could have chosen to desire that. And, sure. and, and in their dialogue in the appendix, he specifically gets into that 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 they they turned away from both the dark and the twilight. So so even though he didn't actually have a real choice, he still made a cha- choice in his heart. You might say. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is uh, yeah. No. It, thinking especially of Aragorn, because certainly Aragorn in his death scene is the one who sort of most pointedly reverses the choice that the Numenorians make. Um, so that's certainly true. Um, other thoughts? Joe, go ahead. Um, I was leaning more towards uh, almost like the tragedy of Luthien. I mean, um, yes, she was happy and she was married and everything, but uh, I mean, the elves mourned for her pretty much. I mean... Yes. Yeah, glad she was happy. I mean, uh, it, it just seems like uh, that could have influenced her. I mean, it's it's an entirely different life, and I mean, even though it seems like Elwing was mortal, uh, it just seems like she felt that it was a lesson learned from Luthien, and that uh, just the situation she was in, I mean, it just seems like, okay, that doesn't seem like the right decision. That's all I got. Yeah, and though I mean, I'm not sure, I wouldn't go so far as to say or to, to sort of suggest that she's like criticizing Luthien in, in the sense of like, you know, I'm going to make this choice because of Luthien. Like, so like after like Luthien's boneheaded decision to become mortal, like, well, see what a crappy idea that was. So I'm not going to fall into that trap again. Uh, obviously not, not going quite that far, but, but Joe, I think you're very right to, to, to remember Luthien's choice is tragic 
not for her, but for the other elves. And and I would just sort of remind you of the last sentence of the chapter on Baron and Luthien uh, on page 187. Yet in her choice, the two kindreds have been joined, and she is the forerunner of many in whom the Eldar see yet, though, the, though all the world is changed, the likeness of Luthien the Beloved, whom they have lost. Luthien the Beloved, whom they have lost, is the final note of that story from the perspective of the elves who are still around. Um, so I think that there is a way in which you can see, because of Luthien, as mean, as meaning, I don't want to do that to them too. Um, that is, you know, they've already lost uh, Luthien. I don't want them to, you know, to lose, uh, to lose Arendel too. I don't want them, you know, because this, recall this is after already, Arendel has abdicated the choice to her. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, so she, you know, he says, choose thou for now. So she knows she is choosing on his behalf too. Um, so yeah, th- we don't want them to lose, uh, Arendo as well as Luthien. So because of Luthien, um, we're gonna, we're, we're not gonna go that way. I think that is one way that we could possibly understand it. Jack? Yeah, while we're on this very chapter, I, what strikes me as odd about it is, um, something seems to have happened to Arendel here. I mean, he's lost something. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he's, it says that he's weary of the world, but you know, this is a major, a major decision for both of them. And he's basically saying, I, you know, I don't know, you decide. Yeah. And when she decides, it's not what he wanted, but he doesn't fight it. And it doesn't seem to be um, just a temporary thing. It seems to be like, like he is weary, weary of the world. And at a time when you think, well, he's come to Valinor and accomplished the impossible, he should be on top of the world. It seems like he's he's gone the opposite um, on the emotional scale or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And his 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 elevation to be made into a star, you know, to be made into a constellation. Um, this is this is usually a great thing. Um, you know, in 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 many mythologies, that's it's like deification. He's not only being given the immortality of of the elves but there is there is an element here which is almost like he's being made a god uh, that is uh, that he's being made like one of the valar themselves um uh, in his ascension into the heavens um so so yeah i jack you're absolutely right this should be this should be the 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 highlight of his career this should be the great and glorious and splendid all these words we've been getting combination or, or culmination of his career and we find Arendel sounding depressed at this moment um, and saying, I am weary of the world. We've seen people weary of the world. Um, we, Fanor's mom was weary of the world. Hurin, at the end of his life, was weary of the world when he cast himself into the sea. Um, now we get Arendel at this moment, weary of the world. Um, and in the one moment when we have what Laura has wanted to see all the way along, uh, that is a husband listening to his wife <laughs> and doing what his wife chooses. Um, you know, Thingol could have learned something from this. Baron could have learned something from this. Yet, um, when he does it, it is, it is almost like an act. It, 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 he sounds defeated rather than victorious. Um, <laughs> Laura's applauding. Go ahead, Jack. Am I, uh, uh, feeling about this is maybe I'm just this is just uh, speculation, but maybe he's like really feeling that he isn't in control of his own destiny. He's seen everything that's come up to this. Now he's getting the the sense that 
this was all predestined for him, and now he's seeing his his future also, and and he's just he's just lost something. Yeah, yeah, and I think it is it is it is a crucial element in this story. Um, and one of the things which I would call you know a very a characteristically Tolkienian touch at the end of this story is this one element of sadness, this one element of tragedy, um, just as Frodo's uh, pain, Frodo's continued suffering and ultimate departure at the end of The Lord of the Rings kind of qualifies the triumph of The Lord of the Rings. And not just the triumph of, you know, hey, like Sauron is defeated and the king is the kingdom is reestablished and everybody's celebrating, but even in a sense, the 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 even more because more personal glorification of things in the Shire um, you know, at the end of the return of the king, after the scouring of the Shire, we're all set. Everything is good, and fourteen twenty rolls around, and 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 uh, nobody was ill, and everybody was pleased. Um, you know, we get all of that kind of language. Um, everybody's happy, and everything is plenteous, and everything is wonderful, except for Frodo, and he, you know, the one who should be as. Sam thinks, um, you know, enjoying this most and appreciating this most because he sacrificed most uh, to to preserve it, isn't happy and isn't whole. And we get that same thing in Arendelle. Um, his, this one moment that we get, which I, I don't want to say undermines the glory of the whole thing, but qualifies it, but contextualizes uh, the the you know the glory and the splendor in a way which as I say I find just really a signature uh, of Tolkien's thought and of Tolkien's storytelling and one of the things that I think makes it so complex. But Mike, go ahead. Is it also kind of signaturely a Tol- Tolkienian? Uh, um... Is it is it also uh, well as I read this is it also possible that there was this mixed feeling at the very end because uh, Arundel had as I read it two goals to reach Valinor and and seek pardon for the two kindreds but also to find his parents mm-hmm. wasn't that called out very early that yep. he was drawn for two reasons and so at the end of this he's only accomplished one of his goals and so there's that unfulfilled. Uh, desire in his heart that is not going to be fulfilled there isn't a complete triumph yeah yeah no i I agree and even uh you know just to to add one more level to that um two purposes grew in his heart from the first paragraph here purpose two purposes grew in his heart blended as one in longing for the wide sea he sought to sail thereon, seeking after Tuor and Idril, who returned not, and he thought to find, perhaps the last shore, and bring ere he died the messages of elves and men to the Valar in the west. As you say, uh, Mike, you know, one for two, okay, you know, he's batting 500, that's pretty good. But I would also point out, in a sense, he's not just one for two, he's one for three. Um, that is, that these two purposes are blended as one in longing for the wide sea. And from which he's permanently separated. Uh, yeah, he's still got his ship, and yeah, he's still a mariner. And sure, you can say that he is an even greater mariner, and um, and you know, sailing the the skies is even more glorious and everything. But it was the sea that he loved, and he can't return to the seas. And he's he is uh, still a mariner and the mightiest mariner of song, but. Um, but he's 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 literally marin uh, the word mariner means sea or comes from the word sea and and he's not he's not in the sea anymore um 
and this is something that we have to remember as well, Manway chooses to to bless him um and not to destroy him when when the when Manway says that the power of doom is given to him, he does merge mercy with justice. He doesn't just dismiss Mandos's um appeal to justice um because Arendel is placed under a doom that he can never return um and he seems to be even cut off cut off fr- from the sea there at the end. Dave. I had two comments. Well, no, I had one comment and one completely trivial question, but it's a curiosity, so I figured I'll ask why not. Uh, and then I was going to say that you should call on Jordan because he can't raise his hand. Okay. Um, my question is, or comment rather, is uh, that the more I, each subsequent time I read this, and the more I listen to you guys um, discuss it, the more I realize that this is uh, this is a really tragic story. I mean, for for Arendelle and Elwing at least. Um, it doesn't really turn out happily for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Elwing's the one who elects to, to you know, go with um, the Eldar and to essentially live forever within the circles of the world. Uh, and then she spends eternity waiting for Arendelle to come back. <laughs> right. He goes off on his ship and she can't go. And it's just like it was before. He's out sailing around and she doesn't go and she sits by the, you know, the coast or in the tower looking for him and waiting for him. Uh, not terribly happy story. Uh, not you know, it's sort of like sort of a very bittersweet ending for her. Um, uh, my my trivial question was just I was wondering about the status of the half elven before Manway makes his judgment. So like, what was Dior? Was he elf? Was he man? What what were um, uh, Arendil and Elwing and Elrond and Elros, what were all of them, before, you know, which race were they with before Manway makes his judgment? Yeah, good question. We have no idea. Um, I mean, on I the one hand... Any answer to that, is there? No, I don't think so. Um, especially since it seemed, based on the time frame that we have, uh, uh, the, you know, the decision point hadn't come yet. That is, none of, Dior doesn't yes. seem to outlive a mortal man in his lifespan. Um, you know, what would have happened? Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, um, but he's, he's killed relatively early. Remember, he barely outlives the death of his parents, who are definitively mortal. Yes. Um, so, so, so yeah, he, he never got the chance to die of old age, so we don't know. Um, but uh so yeah that 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 is just i think a a a a kind of unanswerable question um but but to go back to your other point about elwing and and arendel cuz i agree i i think that that's a that's a really a really important thing there especially when we go back to the parallel between arendel and elwing and baron and luthien um that we were looking at before there is that moment it's, you know the moment when elwing jumps off the ship and comes to him is very Luthien like, you know, no, we're, you know, our fates shall be joined together. We will face this together. Just as Baron and Luthien are facing the darkness, we're going to face the light and we shall suffer alike. And except they don't, um, you know, as you pointed out, Dave, way back, you know, he still says, okay, great, but stay here. I'm going on alone. Um, and in the end, Baron and Luthien can't be separated even by death. And she tells him, she tells him, wait for me, you know, tarry for me. Uh, And he does. Uh, They, you know, even death itself can't separate them and won't separate them. But even immortality can't join Arendelle and Elwing. And as you say, they are, they are caught in this pattern. He, he chooses to be with her and to have his fate be like to hers. Um, 
and as a result, he spends most of his time up on his ship and oh, and separate from her. And I think that there is an element of tragedy, and I don't think we're supposed to see this as, you know, evidence that uh, Elwing and Arendel have a dysfunctional relationship, but rather as as an element of tragedy. You can see both in recalling what Mike was pointing out about the the you know the the intimacy and domestic tenderness that we see between. Elwing and Arendo earlier on, but also that image of her, you know, her rising up to come and greet him when he comes in, you know, they, they clearly, it's not that they don't want to spend time together. Um, but this separation and reunion becomes this cyclical part of their experience now from here on. And they, they will spend the rest of the time of Arda essentially recapitulating their earlier story when she came to him in the form of a bird and they were reunited um, after a long separation. Joe, go ahead. Actually, uh, Jordan, did you want to say something? Oh, right yes. Or, I'm um, sorry. I, I, yes. Jordan, go ahead, please. All right. So uh, I'm going to go back a bit. Uh, and first of all, with the festival, and then I'll get to my real point about this, uh, how terrifying had it would it have been to the elves had they not been at festival that stayed behind? Because the last thing they know is the Noldor have killed the Teleri and taken their ships, and now <laughs> one of them shows back up with a Silmaril. Right. And is I would imagine their first thought was, oh, they got the Silmarils back. They're here to kill us all. <laughs> But when Arendelle ascends into the sky, and it's a star, but it's a green star and it's brighter than any other stars in the sky, that's Venus, not a star. Um, Why do you think he's given the status as a star when in reality he's a planet? This is uh, one of the, the... An illustration of one of the things that Tolkien really struggled with later in his career when he was thinking about redoing a whole bunch of the stuff from the Silmarillion, and he never finished that. You can read about some of his thinking about this in Morgoth's Ring, um, which is after The Lord of the Rings comes out, and he's, do- he's doing his, in the in the last part of his life, Tolkien is doing some reconciliation and another round of retcon on the Silmarillion. And one of the things that he struggled with, and we talked about this a little bit during the chapter of the, uh, of the, the sun and the moon, because that was the place where this came most into play for Tolkien. But anyway, he had this problem because the root of that, the root of the idea of him as star, him as morning and evening star comes from the idea of of a primitive mythology, you know, that he thought in that line from Cunewulf's Christ, uh, the lines that, uh, that Brandon quoted that I read about, uh, uh, the bright angel, um, you know, Tolkien's theory was that this is this is an ancient pre-Christian, a glimpse of an ancient of a pre-Christian pagan mythology um, to explain the morning and evening star. And so he incorporated that and he developed that story and he told that untold story of Arendel, or at least he planned to tell it, but never finished telling it, um, wrote some poems about it. Now, again, the problem that he came up that he came to later on in his life was, but wait a second. The elves, I can't have elven mythology be based on that kind of misunderstanding. I mean, on the one hand, one could simply say, oh, Jordan, that's so pedantic. Like, planet, star, what's the difference? The point is it's a celestial body and they, it looks really bright from the earth and that's the whole thing. But, but Tolkien at the end of his career was not thinking of that as a simply pedantic point because he was saying, look, 
the elves learn this stuff from the Valar themselves. The Valar are going to know. You know, so you can't just say like, oh, the world is flat and then the world is round. Like the Valar are going to be like, no, dude, the world has always been round, actually. It's a sphere, people. It's not flat. Um, and that's the, so, you know, so basically he was going to rewrite the whole thing, recognizing from the beginning within the within the mythology that the elves couldn't possibly be astronomically inaccurate like that because the Valar would tell them if they were so. So therefore he's going to have to say, all right, well, yes, the world is a sphere from the beginning and the sun is there from the beginning and, um, and Arendel's a planet, not a star. Um, but he doesn't finish that, that particular round of retcon, um, for which I'm really grateful. I think, uh, I think the story would really have suffered, uh, had he, had he gone there. Um, as I think I said back when we were talking about the sun and moon, um, but, you know, in function, he is the brightest star. You know, he is he, he he is he stands out among the other stars just as Venus, uh, you know, the, the, the Venus visibly stands out from the stars in the sky. Um, and certainly it was uh, it was not always known that that was because Venus was a planet. Now, it was known in ancient times, Ptolemy knew that Venus was a planet. So this was, this is not like something that only modern science has discovered. The entire cosmological system, um, of the ancient Greek world and the Roman and the medieval world, which was, which was based upon the view of the world that was based upon it, all knew that the world was round and that, uh, that those really, really bright stars that you can see like Venus and Jupiter and Saturn and Mars, our planets, um, rather than just stars like the other stars. But, but again, you still have that root, especially since that last sentence from, uh, Aonwe contains something which is not a translation of the line from Cunewolf, but, uh, but a, a recollection of it, certainly. So you still have that kind of mythological element. I want him to be the greatest and brightest of the stars. And so he is referred to simply as a star, um, cause he's certainly not going to be a planet, but, um, anyway, uh, Joe, go ahead. Uh, this is moving on to when Arendelle is finally in the sky and, and uh, Maedros, uh, speaks to Magor and he says, surely that is a Silmaril that shines now in the West. Then Maglor answers and said, If it be truly the Silmaril which we saw cast into the sea that rises again by the power of the Valar, then let us be glad, for its glory is seen now by many and is yet secure from all evil. Now, uh, I think that in- I think they realize that includes themselves, but, uh, I mean, technically it seems like their O should be saying, okay, we need to get a really tall ladder and get up there and get that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, no, I mean, it, I mean, the reaction to it is almost like their oath is kind of like null on this, um, it seems like they could have almost looked to this, as we see later in the chapter, and say, oh, our oath is, I mean, just even from us being able to let go of this one, even though it's, like, different circumstances, I mean, why can't we let go of these other two? It's just, uh, it's yep. just their response is just like, okay, slap yourselves in the face later because you guys are idiots. I mean, yep. just, uh, they're just not angry about it, and they're happy about it. They've never, ever, ever been happy about someone else having a Somero, whether it was lost to them or not. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's a great, beautiful thing, but it seems like their oath was just nullified by this event. Yeah, I, no, I think that this is a this is a really great point because it is important. This is, I think, one of the clearest places where we can see in Maglor, especially his will being oriented in a different direction from the oath. Because you're right, Joe, the terms of the oath are that nothing and nobody under any circumstance is going to stand between us and the Silmaril. We don't care who it is. Um, who tries to take it and keep it, 
we're coming after it. Um, so as you say, like, let's start building a tower. Let's start building a tower. I don't know what the plan is. But the fact that we can't possibly hope to win, hey, that's never stopped us before. That hasn't stopped us from waging this futile war, or at least talking about waging a futile war against Morgoth. Um, and you got to think, if this were Feanor, if Feanor were still alive in Middle-earth, and he were looking up and he sees the Silmaril rise... He's not going to take that sitting down. He's he's not just going to roll over. Um, and and I th- probably would have made a jet. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's he's gonna he's gonna devise a way to get up there. Um, and but again, it's not just that they give up. It's not just that they don't. But but the fact that he expresses Magor, that is, expresses the joy in sharing it. Um, let us be glad, for its glory is seen now by many and is yet secure from all evil. No, None of the Feanorians have, glo- have taken joy in that ever since Feanor first locked them up. Um, remember that line from, you know, way back um, in you know, before Feanor leaves Valinor, when, uh, uh, when we're told that Feanor locks them away, uh, you know, it denies the sight of them uh, to the Valar and to everybody else. Um, denies them the sight of the Silmarils. Like he keeps them locked at home and denies, denies them the sight of the Silmarils. He knows everybody likes to see the Silmarils. He knows that everyone, uh, everyone sort of basks in the beauty of, of, of the light of the trees contained in the Silmarils of Feanor. But he doesn't care because it's his and he wants to keep it to himself. Um, and then here's Maglor saying, let us be glad, for its glory is seen now by many. Um, that's not the oath talking. That is that is anti-oath speak right there. Um, and I agree. I think that it is interesting that here the two of them are not simply saying we must follow the oath at all costs. Um, and the fact that they give over on this, and we'll return to this when we come back to the final debate between Maglor and Mithros, which we shall, of course, have to do next week. Um, the weekly conspiracy to uh, have the discussion go another week has been again successful. And uh, uh, even though this chapter is uh quite short obviously a good deal shorter than Turin Turambar for instance um it 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 treats so briefly so many big things um that I feel perfectly okay with uh taking an extra week on this so uh let's um let us stop here this is a, it's actually an excellent stopping point here and we will uh commence with uh the war of wrath next time um any final thoughts, comments before we before we adjourn for the evening? One more week. <laughs> yes, Jordan. One more week. Um, okay. Thanks, everybody. So we will do one more week on Arendelle next time, and then it is off to the Akalabath and the story of Numenor. Um, okay. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone who has been listening on Middle Earth Network Radio, and uh, we will. We will see you guys next week. Night. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.